0: Hey, Prime members, you can listen to the Al Franken podcast ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today.
1: Angie's list is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing.
0: Friggin' time. Man, we've had a bad streak. But this one is great because it's about the Coney Barrett hearings. And I got a lot uh, to say about this. Uh, And our guest is Brian Fallon, who is the executive director of Demand Justice. And when they say Demand Justice, they are demanding justice, you see. They've been pushing the Democratic senator's particularly to be stronger on this stuff, and I have two. And it's it this is is a, a great one. Now I know that the Coney Barrett hearings are are beginning to fade in people's memory. They shouldn't. You know, I was there in 2016 when my Republican colleagues on the Judiciary Committee would not even meet, would not even meet with President Obama's nominee Merrick Garland. And this was all based on this principle, this principle that you couldn't take up a Supreme Court nominee in an election year. That was it. That was the principle, and it was such a strong principle that they pledged not to take up a Supreme Court nominee in 2020 if there was a Republican president elected in 2016. Use it against me. Let's play that. Let's play Lindsey Graham saying that right across from me in the the committee.
2: If there's a Republican president in 2016 and a vacancy occurs in the last year of the first term, you can say Lindsey Graham said, let's let the next president, whoever it might be, make that nomination. And you could use my words against me and you'd be absolutely right.
0: And it wasn't just him. No, no, it was Grassley and, and Cornyn and Tillis and all of them, Cruz, every one of them made the same pledge. Now, Graham would have said, okay, but Kavanaugh, it was, you know, Kavanaugh, right? So let's play that. Let's play that. This is at the Atlantic Festival. This is Graham.
2: If. And opening comes in the last year of President Trump's term and the primary process has started, we'll wait to the next election. And I've got a pretty good chance of being the judiciary. You're on the record. Yeah. All right. Hold the tape.
0: So there he is. There he is again. And then he says, well, Grant, you know, Kavanaugh, the Kavanaugh hearings. were ter- That was after Kavanaugh. That was after Kavanaugh. Man, these guys are awful. They are shameless hypocrites, every one of them. And my former Democrat colleague should have pounded them over and over and over again during the the hearings for Comey Barrett. And, And by the way, I do think, that Diane Feinstein should have raised the matter with Kavanaugh much earlier in that process. I, I will say that that would have been the proper way to do it. I think she mishandled that. But still, the idea that this was so unfair to Kavanaugh, I was, the whole Kavanaugh process, I was very frustrated in the announcement where, where Trump announced at the White House, that was Kavanaugh, Kavanaugh spoke. And when he spoke, he said this. He said, no president has consulted more widely or talked with more people from more backgrounds to seek input about a Supreme Court nomination. That's what he said. Except, of course... Trump said, I'm not going to take anybody that I don't get from the Federalist Society. So I sent my colleagues a line of questioning, which would have started, congratulations, Judge Kavanaugh, on your nomination. Uh, Now I'm going to ask you a series of yes or no questions, and uh, they're just really simple yes or no questions. For example, uh, first one is, should a judge make determinations based on his own personal bias? Of course, Uh, should a judge make determinations based on facts? Yes. Should a judge make determinations based on a complete and fair understanding of the facts? Of course. Do you think that the first speech that a Supreme Court nominee gives after it's been announced that he's a nominee, do you think that first speech is an important part of the confirmation process? Of course, of course, of course. Now, in your first speech after you were nominated, you said the following. No president has consulted more widely or talked with more people from more backgrounds to seek input about a Supreme Court nomination. Did I quote you accurately? Oh, I did. I did. Mm -hmm. Are you aware that you were on the Federalist Society shortlist? and that the president pledged to take, to nominate only people on that short list? Do you stand by that statement? No, huh? No. Okay, that was a line of questioning that I sent to my colleagues. No one asked that. Okay, again, I think that uh, Dianne Feinstein mishandled Kavanaugh. I think uh, the, the the Dr. Ford allegations, and I think that was mishandled. I will admit that. I will admit that should have been handled differently. I was watching that, and I felt that my colleagues did not handle that well at all. In his opening, he said. Um, that the four witnesses, remember that the FBI only talked to four witnesses, and they asked them, do you remember this party? And all four said, no, I don't, we don't remember the party. And one was a friend of Dr. Ford's, and she said, no, I don't remember the party. Now, why would you remember a party that nothing happened to you at 30-some years ago? You wouldn't remember that party, but... This is what Judge Kavanaugh, now Justice Kavanaugh, said about that, about those four, four witnesses that the FBI interviewed saying they don't remember this party. Dr. Ford's allegation is not merely uncorroborated. It is refuted by the very people she says were there including by a longtime friend, refuted. Refuted? I don't remember the party. Now, when I say four people who don't remember it, maybe because nothing particular happened to, one person something happened there to was Mark Judge, his friend. Who wrote a book about being a teenage blackout drunk? So maybe he doesn't remember the party, but he was the guy that Dr. Ford said was with him. So he's claiming <laughs> that these four witnesses refuted? Refute? You know, a, a county judge, a county judge should know the meaning of the word refute. Really? Refuted? One of the people who testified was Dr. Ford's friend who said, no, I don't remember it, but I believe her. So none of my colleagues jumped on that. I think you will remember my colleague Amy Klobuchar asked him, uh, Judge Kavanaugh, did you ever have any episodes where, where you drank so much that you blacked out? Remember this? And he went, No, have you? No, have you? Have you ever had an episode where you've blacked out? No, have you? My goodness. And she was startled and she handled it really well. Her father was an alcoholic, was a bad alcoholic. She's lived with that. She said, I've lived with this, but uh, no, no, no. Let me ask you again (laughs) Did you ever have an episode where you blacked out? No, have you? There were a lot of senators asking questions after that. Why didn't one say, um, Judge Kavanaugh, the senator asked you a question and you came back with, no, view? you? You know what that tells me, Judge Kavanaugh? It tells me you might be a little defensive about your drinking. Does anyone, anyone here in this room, the 500 people in this room, that they experienced the same way I did, that you might be a little defensive about your drinking? And you said that the four witnesses that the FBI interviewed refuted Dr. Ford's allegations by saying they don't remember being at the party. That doesn't really refute anything. But one of those people that was there, Was Mark Judge your friend, who Doctor Ford says was there with you? Was one? There was the two of you. He wrote a book called "Wasted: Tales of a Blackout Drunk." There's a reason Senator Klobuchar asked this question about being black a blackout drunk or an episode, you say you like beer. By your reaction to Senator Klobuchar, I think maybe you like beer too much. And in Wasted Tales of a Blackout Drunk, there is a, a segment, a little thing about a classmate of Mark Judge's uh named Bart O'Kavanaugh. Bart O'Kavanaugh. Now here's my question to you, Judge Kavanaugh. Do you remember Bart O'Kavanaugh? Judge Kavanaugh? Do you remember Bart O'Kavanaugh? Okay, no one on the Democratic side asked that after he inexplicably answered back, No of you, to United States Senator. Now, look, if you don't know the meaning of the word refute and if that's your reaction, I don't think they can go, well, I made this uh, pledge on the basis of principle (laughs) and then later go like, well, but it was a treatment of him. Come on. Come on. Judge Kavanaugh is now Justice Kavanaugh. He should be well treated with the respect of a justice, I, I guess. And looks like Comey Bear, who lied, who lied. You know, she was she was asked by Senator Leahy if she if she knew that the Alliance defending freedom had been promoting for decades, for years and years recriminalizing homosexuality and she said, uh, no, I didn't know that. Yes, she did. Yes, she did. And you know why I know that? Because I asked her about that in 2017. And okay, okay, well, wait a minute. That was three years ago. She might have forgotten that. Guess who was at the Rose Garden ceremony where she was nominated? the president and CEO of the Alliance Defending Freedom. She spoke to them five times. That's all they're about was recriminalizing homosexuality. That's what they're about. Oh, wait a minute. I'm sorry. They also are for sterilizing transgender people. President-CEO is at her Rose Garden ceremony. In fairness to him, he did wear a mask, but not because of COVID, because he was afraid there might be a homosexual there. The president said he pledged only (laughs) to nominate people for the Supreme Court who are on the short list from the Federalist Society and the Heritage Foundation, but I don't think they're really in it. And here's the thing. Republicans kept asking these questions like, um, Judge Comey Barrett, have you talked to the president about Roe v. Wade? Uh, No, I haven't. Well, she didn't have to. If she talked to the president and he did ask her about it, uh, how Will you uh, reverse Roe v. Wade, just like the Federal Society said you will and promised that any that nominee that they gave to me will do it. Uh Well, Mr. President, let me just say to you, might you look at who sent me? Holy mackerel. And the idea... That the Republicans were going, have you talked to the president about uh, you know about the ACA? Have you talked to the President about uh, Roe v. Wade?" Uh no, I haven't. How about a Democrat saying, "Hmm, have you talked to a member of the Federalist Society about that, and is it possible for a member of the Federalist Society to talk to the President? Just is that within the realm of possibility? Of course, the president didn't have to ask you. We don't have to ask you. The fix is in. And everybody there knows it. Everybody on that side knows it. Everybody here knows it. Everybody knows it. Let's not play games. This is what it is. I do not know why my former colleagues didn't voice that. Look, this is a power grab. It was supposedly based on Merrick Garland was, you know, named in, in February while the New Hampshire primary was voting. 14 million people have voted already in the presidential election. The hypocrisy is clear, so clear to everyone. And the American people should be very angry about that. This was pure power. There was no principles other than pure power. Well, you know, you can do it. It's in the Constitution. The president nominates. The Senate disposes. You could not take up Merrick Garland. That's that goes along with the Constitution. That's fine with the Constitution. Well, so is expanding the court. I mean, it's constitutional. Oh, I'm frustrated, okay? I'm a little frustrated. That's frustrated I couldn't be there. I'll tell you that. Brian Fallon will be right with us. The executive director of Demand Just with, finally, finally, a really good show for a change. The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way, and that's with Babbel. (laughs) Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's convenient courses have helped me learn real-life conversation in German. For example, let's say you wanted to order soup with your dinner. Die Suppe würde mir auch gefallen. That means the soup. <laughs> that, means, that means I would also like the soup. And that way, I get soup with dinner. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now... Get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash franken. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com slash franken, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash franken. Rules and restrictions may apply.
3: Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices
0: This is sort of the culmination of the project of decades, Federalist Society I'm talking about and the Republican, right? They create the list for Trump, and Trump says, I will only nominate people who are approved by them that are on their short list, is that you absolutely know ahead of time where they stand on these, these issues, on abortion the, on healthcare, on, on the ACA. I remember a number of Republicans said things like now, did you, the president talk to you about Roe? Uh, no, he didn't. Hmm. And I don't know why any Democrat didn't say, did the Federalist Society talk to you about Roe? Anybody from there? And could a Federalist Society, uh, guy, a person say, uh, talk to the president? Is that a possible thing in in human activity? Why didn't we bring that up?
4: I I thought that the approach to questioning this week was straight out of like 20 or 30 years ago. I I think at this point, you know, we went into this nomination hearing with more of a paper trail on this nominee than than you usually get. Because this woman has spent her career signing her name to advertisements in public newspapers, acting as a commentator on Supreme Court decisions. So she had left a trail of breadcrumbs that made pretty plain her positions on issues like the ACA and Roe, um, in addition to Donald Trump's own commitments that he's made during the 2016 campaign and since. And that you come into the hearings and so many lines of questioning from the Democratic side of the dais were sort of seeking to elicit from her, you know, some kind of confessions on her positions on these issues as if we didn't already know them. I would have spent the time, you know, if I was advising any of these senators, just confronting her with their own statements and forcing her to square them with her current position that she doesn't have any preconceived notions and would go under the bench as a neutral arbiter. Those two things don't square. And the idea that she was going to be trapped or rhetorically led into, a uh, a cul de sac where she would have to cry uncle and admit her to her views was never going to happen. And so, really, all the smoking guns that we needed, we had before the hearing took place. I wish that the lines of questioning would have reflected that a little bit more.
0: They basically agreed. It looked like the Democrats on the committee agreed we're going to make this about the ACA, we're going to make this about health care because that's what won us the election in 2018. And people are scared to death of losing coverage if they have pre-existing conditions, right? So that's clearly what their what their strategy was. And they held up pictures. And I think that's probably a good strategy. If people looking at that went, oh, my God, this is in jeopardy again. And so not a dumb strategy, which is lose this battle, but win the election. But I would have been much more pointed and said, look, You guys said when Merrick, I was there when Merrick Garland came up and they wouldn't take him because the election was happening. That was their only excuse. (laughs) They didn't say the other stuff they now say. They especially didn't say, well, the president nominates and the Senate disposes. So that's the way it is. So this is, they were not disposing. No. And they pledged very famously that if, a Republican won in 2016, and a seat came up in 2020. They would not take him up, right? What I would have said, like, this is a power grab. You're, you're all hypocrites, and the American people know it. It's really easy to see. Don't do this. Don't do this, because you're saying, okay, it's in the con- this is in the Constitution. Well, there's nothing in the Constitution saying that we can't expand the court. Don't do this because what you're doing is hypocritical and it's just a power grab. And you know who is going to know that? The people of South Carolina and the people of North Carolina and the people of Texas and the people of Iowa and the people of Georgia and the people of Iowa and the people of Colorado and the people of Missouri and the people of Arizona and the people of Alaska and the people of Kansas and the people of Maine are all going to know what you just did something like that
4: yeah i'm with you
0: oh also she she did not amy klobuchar asked her about voter intimidation and she didn't think that was she didn't know whether that was illegal <laughs> yeah and there were,
4: there were all sorts of lines of questioning here where she set a new standard for stonewalling even compared to previous Republican nominees. It used to not be controversial for instance to acknowledge a constitutional right to privacy and say that a case like Griswold um, about private use of contraception inside the home, you know, was a rightly decided case.
0: But not knowing that something is against not knowing that voter intimidation is against the law is absurd.
4: Well, you know, I think if she gets onto the court as it's looking like she will, One of the things she's going to be asked to do and is probably likely to do very consistently is to uphold voter suppression schemes that um, Republican states are being increasingly ambitious about. And that has been one of the through lines of the Roberts court era. You know, Roberts has in the last couple of terms picked his spots carefully on certain cases to avoid throwing the Supreme Court into the political mix even more so than it already is. One consistent area of jurisprudence for him where he never departs from the other members of the conservative bloc is on matters of voter suppression issues, election related questions. And so I think that the, the definition of what counts as voter intimidation is up for grabs with these conservatives. And there, there's likely not any voter suppression scheme that this Roberts court, you know, would would disapprove of if it's something that the Republican Party is solidly behind.
0: OK, but still there there's a difference between voter suppression and voter intimidation. Voter intimidation is as illegal as grand theft auto. (laughs)
4: <laughs> but i was thinking maybe it's in the same category as the question about climate change which she also wouldn't answer she must know the science on that but she doesn't want to answer it because she's she's expected to be a dutiful foot soldier in the and the anti-science agenda that will seek to disempower the epa to regulate greenhouse gases and that's the role that's going to be expected of her and she probably didn't want to cast any doubt on that by even admitting to something that is indisputable about the about climate change is
0: man-made and 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 what's she really saying uh You know, we know that 97 percent of climate scientists have concluded uh, beyond a doubt that there's climate change and that the therefore the EPA has really the duty to regulate carbon dioxide uh, emissions. But there's still the three percent of climate scientists who are paid by the oil and gas industry. So if a case comes up, I'm going to personally do the scientific research to decide to my own satisfaction who's right. The climate scientists or the Koch brothers? Okay, so let's say we win. Okay, let's say Biden wins and we flip the Senate. That's because everybody listening is going to go and vote. Let's say we do that. What, what do you want uh, Democrats in the Senate and the president to be doing about our courts? I have
4: suggestions big and small. I think for one thing, a small thing. I, I think with all due respect to Dianne Feinstein's service, I, I think that I, I don't think we'll have any chance of approaching the next two years with the urgency that they need to be approached with with respect to the work of the Judiciary Committee if she's, if she's the chairman. So for starters, I think the easiest, lowest hanging fruit thing to that to me would be a sign that the caucus is ready to take a different approach would be to come up with some solution, whether she decides to take the Intelligence Committee back or steps down whatever having a change in leadership at the judiciary committee that's number one
0: well she she did sort of an inexplicable uh thing at at the end uh, which is compliment graham i want a wonderful hearing this has been and then hug him, uh which kind of underscored the the point uh that you're making here to say the least so that's number one
4: number two
0: i think we need a
4: An executive order from the incoming Biden administration that sets out the parameters about the urgency that they're going to assign to judicial judicial appointments, and that means that we need to have a time certain in terms of nominating people for vacancies that arise, and we need a commit a shared commitment from the Senate Democratic leadership to bring those up and devote the necessary floor time to them. The reason that Donald Trump has set records here these last couple of years is because the Republican Senate does no legislating; they only they almost exclusively do. Um, confirmations of executive and judicial appointments. And I'm worried that in the next two years, our legislative agenda is going to be so ambitious, appropriately so, that judicial nominations will fall by the wayside again. And so I've already started asking Schumer's office, you know, can we start to condition the caucus's mind on the idea of staying in till Friday morning so that we can have votes at the end of the week on judicial nominations? And I think that's going to be a hard hurdle to clear that everybody's used to getting out of town on Thursdays, but we're going to have to make time and attach priority to judicial nominations. I'd also like to see a change in paradigm about the types of people that we nominate for judicial positions. Republicans basically, you know, identify people right after they passed the bar and they've been nominating 37, 38 year olds the last four years. And we, on, the, on our side, it's very honorable and it makes a lot of sense in, one, in, in, in a certain way to, to treat judicial nominations to the federal bench as sort of a crowning achievement and a capstone to someone's career. And so we tend to nominate people that are 50, 55, but the result is they either retire or take senior status sooner than somebody that's 38 or 39. So I'd like to see us skew younger in our appointments. And I'd also see us like to place an emphasis on different types of professional backgrounds. So instead of having more prosecutors, let's nominate public defenders. Instead of having more corporate attorneys that represent the pharmaceutical, banking and energy industries, let's have people that are working in the civil rights issue. In the past, these are positions you know, the reason that we would default to nominating assistant U.S. attorneys and corporate lawyers is because it was inoffensive to Republicans if you nominated somebody that sort of had a corporate or prosecutorial background. But if we have the Senate and we only need 51 votes now to confirm people, we should start making it, putting a premium on people that choose to go into these other types of work like civil rights law and not worry that Republicans are going to demonize people like Debo Adigbele that failed to be confirmed for the civil rights division of the Justice Department in 2013. And then, big picture, Senator, I think we need to pursue some structural reforms that seek to remedy the utter politicization of the judicial branch that has been afoot these last several years. And to me, that takes many forms. Um, the simplest among them being the Supreme, it was mentioned this week, this week that the Supreme Court operates without any accountability. There is no code of ethics that applies to the Supreme Court. Um, Sheldon Whitehouse uh, quizzed Amy Coney Barrett about that, and she professed not to know that uh, justices on the court were immune from any code of ethics. So that would be the easiest thing you could do. My group also supports judicial term limits, which we think that you could do without a constitutional amendment. If you um, required Supreme Court justices to serve a term of, say, 18 years, and then you rolled them down to a circuit court, they'd still have lifetime tenure, just not. but the Constitution doesn't guarantee lifetime tenure on a particular court. And then the biggest thing that I think we need to get people to wrap their minds around is the idea of expanding the size of the court. And I thought that that was justified after Merrick Garland. I thought it was further justified by the way that Brett Kavanaugh was railroaded onto the court. And I think if the episode here with Ruth Bader Ginsburg's seat does not convince progressives that we need to think about this, then I don't know what will.
0: Otherwise, we're just rolling over and saying we're going to always roll over.
4: I don't want the situation permanently to be one where there's an ongoing tit-for-tat and one side constantly engaging in gamesmanship over the other. The world as I uh, would like it to be is not just us getting better at out-federalist society and this federalist society. I would like to get us to a de-escalated situation, but um, I'm sort of above the belief that we need to escalate in order to ever de-escalate, that if we don't stand up to the Republicans and what they're doing, they'll continue to have every incentive in the world to engage in this asymmetrical warfare over the courts. So I would like to get to a version of of things where we have the judicial equivalent of independent commissions like we do for redistricting. But until that time, I think we have to not engage in unilateral disarmament.
0: Yeah. I, I think everything you're talking about is, is absolutely sensible. And anything else is just really saying, oh, no, you guys did a horrible, horrible, horrible thing, underhanded, hypocritical, we're not going to do anything about it because we're principled.
4: Yeah. The justification that the Senate Republicans are making for forcing Amy Coney Barrett's nomination through at a historically close date to the election, you know, no one's ever been confirmed as close to the election before. Um, But their argument basically is we're in power, so we can do it, so we're going to do it. And yet, if you start to talk about what Democrats might, might want to do next year if we regain power in terms of like reassessing the composition of the court, they wheel out their fainting couches and act like you know, that such a step would you know, transgress all kinds of boundaries and obliterate norms. And uh, it would be just as constitutional and just as within the, you know, within the, the law, um, changing the number of seats on the Supreme Court as what they're doing now by jamming this through. And so they have a lot of selective outrage about things that are constitutionally permissible. Within the first couple of days after Ruth Bader Ginsburg passed, there was a big outpouring of people putting this idea on the table. And then people sort of retreated from it because they let themselves become convinced that, you know, it, w- it was a trap that Republicans were laying as opposed to something that we need to get serious about pursuing if, if they go through with this.
0: Well, it's a dicey subject right now, and we want to win the election, and we don't want to commit ourselves to what we'll do and
4: you know chuck has said uh nothing's off the table uh which is obviously a pregnant statement but it sort of strikes the right balance i think between acknowledging the uh, the option of doing it but not waving it in their faces right now right before the election and biden has mostly avoided studiously avoided ruling it in or out
0: okay we're going to take a short break we'll be right back with brian fallon of demand justice
1: This episode is brought to you by Noom. Forget one-size-fits-all diets. With Noom, you get a personalized weight loss plan that's tailored to your lifestyle. No food is off limits. Enjoy your favorites while discovering healthier habits. Noom's users love the flexible approach, blending psychology and biology to help you lose weight in a way that's sustainable for you. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at noom.com. That's N O O M.com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold.
3: Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at Bluenile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code AUDIO to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code AUDIO at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code AUDIO.
0: Hey, I want to bring up a pet peeve of mine during these hearings that just drove me nuts and it was uh people like Hawley and uh tillis did it where they're going like how dare they attack your catholicism and it's like what <laughs> and, like Hawley actually said they're trying to get rid of uh article six that you can't have a religious test to hold office and it's like what are you talking about and he but it wasn't like he just said that and let it go. It was like he built his whole thing on it. I mean, it was re- ridiculous. They would put up these straw men. And and Tillis, did you see this? Where Tillis in his first thing basically said, you know what's going on behind the curtain? Okay, everybody here, none of the Democratic senators are bringing up the fact that you're Catholic. They're, they're not doing it. But behind the curtains, here's what's happening. And then he read some tweets. From randos. Yeah, he read some random tweets. That that was it, and I did didn't know why any Democrat on the committee go like whoa 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 whoa. That's uh, what's happening behind the curtain. What curtain? Twitter. <laughs> I mean, what are you? He got away with that. Behind the curtains, we're seeing people say all kinds
4: of things about you. Uh, one, rec- one called you a white colonizer for actually adopting two Haitian children. We have another one calling you a handmaid and a clown and a clown car. And I'm not going to – it will be submitted for the record, but the profanity used in there. Uh, another one uh, that, uh, that says that, yeah, you're a good mom, but that doesn't qualify you as a judge. What qualifies you as a judge is being an extraordinary professor, an extraordinary student, and an extraordinary jurist. And I think that these people need to recognize doing the bidding of this committee by attacking you outside of the committee is as bad as them
0: being in this chamber. My God, it was stupid. She has so
4: much of a paper trail in terms of her hostility to abortion rights in Roe that they tried to elide the issue um, by acting like this was just a personally held religious conviction. And you can't make the leap to assume that that's how she would rule on any abortion-related litigation. To be honest, I think it sort of worked. It had a chilling effect on how forcefully Democrats confronted her over past, you know, affiliations and statements related to abortion and right-to-life groups. They had to be quite inventive about it, as you mentioned, reading tweets from random people on Twitter because Democrats were so purposeful about not giving that narrative any oxygen. As you know, in 2017, um, there were some statements that Fox News made into a cause celeb in terms of uh, statements Diane Feinstein made at her confirmation hearings for the circuit court. You know, Republicans were just waiting for any, any sort of statement that was reminiscent or evocative of that from 2017, but they never got it. Uh, But they still pursued that line of attack anyway. And I feel like Democrats sort of gave into it. Yesterday, at the end of the hearing, yesterday, um, Senator Durbin, very nice man, sort of took the opportunity at the end of the hearing to apologize to the nominee for any attacks that she felt like she and her family had endured in this process. And the Democrats did not carry out any personal attacks on her or her faith or her family.
0: Well, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Did you see these three people on Twitter?
4: Yeah, exactly.
0: I mean, come on.
4: Now there was, you know, there was plenty of <laughs> there was plenty of coverage in the in the news media about, for instance, the group that she's connected to, people of praise. But there wasn't a Democrat on the committee that went within a country mile of that issue.
0: Yeah, and the, the, the people of praise. I mean, okay, that's her religion. That's that's separate. She belonged to a group, her right to life group in in uh, South Bend, whose position was that life begins at fertilization, right? And that in vitro fertilization, you create a number of eggs that are fertilized, and not all of them, or very few of them, are, are viable. So some die along the way, and there are extras that are created that are frozen. And th- they said it would be criminal for someone to destroy or to discard one of those fertilized eggs.
4: You know, initially, The Guardian was the outlet that first reported on this ad from 2006 that she signed in the South Bend Tribune. It was a two-page ad, and her name appeared, you know, if you open up uh, one of those old-school broadsheet newspapers, you have, uh, you have the, the, the two pages side-by-side. Her signature appeared on the left-hand side, and then on the right was uh, a much fuller graphic with, you know, big, huge text saying that the barbaric legacy of Roe v. Wade needs to be ended. And it was signed by this group Michiana based out of South Bend, Right to Life. And then in the course of reporting on the advertisement, the Guardian got in touch with the current active executive director of this group that paid for the ad in 2006. And the leader of the group freshly affirmed for the Guardian that their stated positions are that abortion providers should be prosecuted and that these you know, normal routine parts of IVF should be criminalized and said it in the, in the article. And and their response was, the White House's response on her behalf was, well, she didn't necessarily know what was going to run on the second half of the advertisement. So the calling of uh, Roe barbaric was not something that she was aware of going in. But she definitely knew the group whose advertisement she was signing on to. And she had to know what the group's views are on IVF because the signing of this ad was not her first encounter with this group. This is a group she's been active with for many years. Just doesn't pass... The laugh test, like everything else that she tried to disown this week.
0: But when you're saying you can't do in vitro fertilization because as a result of it, you're going to have to dispose a fertilized egg. I think the American people should know that because there are a lot of couples who avail themselves of in vitro fertilization. And that's how they get their family with both parents' genes. Her group said they would prosecute. They were calling for the criminalization of disposing of a fertilized egg.
4: In your first race uh, back then, you know, big issue from the Bush years was stem cell research. Remember? And today you, won't, you don't see anybody running on the Republican side that is still trying to make that an issue. Even, even after she made her updated disclosures this week. Um, she made a supplemental filing before the Judiciary Committee because CNN has been uncovering all these sorts of remarks that she didn't initially disclose. She still won't affirmatively acknowledge and, and submit to the committee that ad for that ran in 2006 that um, that ties her to that Michiana group. and. So I think that they, the the handlers on on this nomination process from the White House, sort of recognize how damning that is because it robs them of the talking point to pretend that this is just a matter of religious belief. That affiliation with that group and that two-page ad pretty squarely commits her to the side of wanting to see Roe overturned and all the views on IVF that that group holds.
0: I think you've given us a path going forward, and you guys are going to keep fighting. See, I thought that we could have done a job in that committee. Of making it much harder for Republican senators who aren't on the committee to vote to say, no, you got to wait till after the election.
4: For a while, Mitch McConnell was not publicly committing to voting before the election, even though it took them about four or five days to um, announce that they had the votes to confirm her. He went on Hugh Hewitt. He was... In a number of public forums where he was asked specifically about the timing for the vote and he would not commit to it being before the election, it's only in the last week or so that they've now committed that uh, as soon as she's marked up on the 22nd next Thursday, um, he'll file cloture on her and, uh, and the vote will probably be you no know, later than the Tuesday before election day. So I think that part of the reason why he was hedging his bets on the timeline there was, I think it was a bit of a tactic on McConnell's part to go to the Cory Gardner's in his caucus and get them to rip the band aid off very early and just say that they would commit to supporting the nominee in order to try to rob the whole situation of any sense of suspense and try to demor- demoralize activists and senators on the, mm-hmm. on the left. And, um, I think a lot of senators took the bait and have, you know, sort of pivoted and saying like, well, he's got the votes. Let's focus on the election. I think that's unfortunate because I do think we could still make this more politically painful for them.
0: Are there any still available to persuade
4: senators on the Republican side? Yeah, I don't know. I, I, you know, we have two. we need two more. I think Cory Gardner, if he had his druthers. His, his preferred playing out of the situation would probably be to publicly say that he's intending to support her, but to have the vote be after. So he's not jamming that through literally the week before he um, is trying to hold on to his seat. But I don't know that he by himself is going to be able to shift McConnell off of his timeline. Uh, initially, a Mitt Romney was somebody that people thought might have another profound courage moment. But what people, I think, forgot when they were thinking of that, Romney, of course, did that Departed from the rest of the Republicans on the impeachment question. But judges is sort of an area where, whether you're a never trumper or, or, or a MAGA head, you know, Federalist Society judges is something that you agree on. In fact, a lot of these never trumpers have, you know, gone along with the Trump. George Conway is a Federalist Society member, even as he gets so much credit for his involvement in the Lincoln Project. And so um, this sort of um, you know, political marriage between conservatives that don't personally like Trump, but do like his judges is one of the reasons that the Republicans have been hard to get them to disavow him. And so it didn't surprise me that Mitt Romney wouldn't decamp from this whole project. So it's going to be tough. Even still, I would say we lose nothing by contesting this all the way till the end and making it as illegitimate seeming as it is and hanging an asterisk around her because we do have the political high ground. It's, a, it's an issue that can only help us, not hurt us in the election. And I do think we need to build a predicate for doing something in response next Congress if we win.
0: Yeah, there's a reason that these Lincoln Project guys and the George Conways were Republicans. (laughs) And they're very pro-business and very anti-labor and uh, don't mind a little pollution here or there if it helps commerce. And so there's that. Absolutely. Okay, I thought I was going to end this a little bit cheered up, but help, help me.
4: What I'm cheered by is I do think that the pendulum is slowly starting to swing back. In other words, even before Ruth Bader Ginsburg died, There was a bunch of polling that came out starting in August showing that in a reversal from the exit polls in 2016, Democratic voters were telling pollsters that they considered the Supreme Court a more important voting issue than Republicans were saying. Since Ruth Bader Ginsburg died, you've seen Act Blue set all kinds of records for donations flowing into Senate candidates. You see consistently in the polls, both before and after Ruth Bader Ginsburg's passing, that the public is saying that they support Joe Biden's handling of the Supreme Court going forward. I do think that our side at a grassroots level, at the level of the electorate, is starting to give the judges and the courts the salience it deserves. Unfortunately, it's, it's taking all these radicalizing moments and grievances to you know, accumulate for, the, for our side to get its act together. But I do think we're closer to that point where our side is starting to surpass the Republicans and in, in, in organizing itself around the courts. That's overdue. But I think it's there's a pivot point that's happening now. I think that the your former colleagues in the Senate Caucus are going to be lagging, not leading indicators. Um, so it's going to fall to groups like mine and the MoveOns of the world and the Indivisibles to prioritize this. and And I'm really heartened by the fact that groups like Indivisible, you know, they're already making a project out of building a support for a democracy agenda that includes getting rid of the filibuster and uh, court reform and reforming the Electoral College and all these aspects of our system that are so counter-majoritarian that allow you know a minority uh, of Republicans in the Senate to dictate how things go. I do think that there is a lot of civic engagement happening on that and a rising level of education about what needs to happen and support for those types of things is growing. And so I think that's the silver lining to this.
0: Yeah, I think you're right. I think uh, now progressives are going to be, uh, and Democrats are just going to be looking at the understanding the importance of the courts of this third branch and we haven't and part of it is that uh you know Obergefell and and Roe and those victories have sort of made us going like eh, they're okay (laughs) and and the Republicans were going like no Roe and this is it's too bad that it takes such a profound hit in order to wake people up. Brian, thank you. And thank you for the work you've been doing all along on this. I, the Demand justice has been such a positive force in, in this fight.
4: Well, thank you, Senator, for having me on.
0: Well, I, I hope you enjoyed uh, listening. That beautiful music is by Leo Kotke, the great Leo Kotke. I want to thank Peter Ogburn for producing this podcast. We'll talk again
3: The early 2000s was a wild time for reality TV. There seemed to be an endless supply of shows that delivered entertainment for us, but trauma for children. I'm Misha Brown, the host of Wondery's podcast, The Big Flop. Each week on The Big Flop, comedians join me to chronicle the biggest pop culture fails of all time and try to answer the age-old question, who thought this was a good idea? We recently looked behind the scenes of what was really going on at Abby Lee Miller's dance studio. Abby's biggest misstep wasn't screaming nonsensical catchphrases or throwing chairs on television, but instead, she was choreographing financial fraud in plain sight. Join me to break down all the wild details of Abby Lee Miller's story. Follow The Big Flop on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Big Flop early and ad free right now by joining Wondery Plus